All right, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Our text today will be Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to use one of the Bibles that should be, there should be, hopefully in every row, a Bible in the back of at least one of the chairs. And if you use one of those chair Bibles, uh, the reading for today, the text for today is on page 700. 24. So it's on page 724 if you're using one of our chair Bibles. Otherwise, it's Ezekiel 37, and I can't help you too much other than it's kind of in the middle uh, of your Bible. So Ezekiel 37. Uh, if you're a guest with us, let me add my welcome to you. We're so glad that you are here. Trust that you've been blessed already as the Word has been read and prayed and sung and now it's, it's my joy, as it is most weeks here, to get to open the Bible and look into it together and try to say, look, look at him, isn't he great? And then to think together about what it means for us and what difference it should make in our lives. I've been gone the last couple Sundays. Uh, the first Sunday we were away on vacation. Last weekend I was with one of our partner churches in Trinity Fellowship Churches out in Iowa in the Des Moines area, and it was a blessing to be with them. That's a church plant that's just a few years old that we're partnered with in Trinity Fellowship Churches, and it's a second year in a row getting to go out there and be with them, and it's so great connecting with the church, getting to serve them, and also brought our two younger girls who match in age pretty closely with um, the two daughters of one of the pastors there, so they got to ride horses. It's different out there. Um, than, than here. You might have seen pictures of Iowa. I don't know if you've been to Iowa. I've only been a few times now. The girls, girls love it. It's very different. Yeah. It's like wide open spaces. And they're like, you want to ride horses? And you're like, sure. The pastor and his family actually live in the barn, in like an air-conditioned residential area, but in the barn uh, where his wife works uh, full-time managing a breeding farm. So like you go in their door that says private residence, then you go to the next door and it's like you're walking down, it's the stalls and all the mares that have either recently given birth or about to give birth. Um, I also learned that the gestation period for horses is like between 330 and 350 days. Right? No bueno. So, moms, you can be glad you're not a horse for lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah, but they told me that. I'm like, wow, that's a long, long time. Okay, so enough about that. It was a joy to be with them, and it's a joy now to be back with you and to be looking together at Ezekiel 37. And I just kind of want to set up the text. If you're a guest, especially, this is for you, but it's also for all of us. We're in a series through the major prophets where we're not saying we've covered everything. In fact, we might even come back relatively soon to one of these books and do a full series through it. Um, but as we're trying to kind of walk through the Old Testament, this summer we're walking through the major prophets, doing an overview message, which two weeks ago Jimmy Beavers did that overview message for us here of Ezekiel and did an excellent job orienting us to what is going on in Ezekiel and pointing us to how all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and being with him, being his people, him being our God and us 
being his people. And then Eric McIntyre followed up last week from Ezekiel 11 after the, the kind of the darkest hour in Ezekiel 10 of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple to the promise, I will give you a new heart and take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In the darkest moment, there's this promise of life. And today we're actually going to kind of build on that with Ezekiel 37, which is a picture of life out of death, an impossible situation that's not impossible because nothing is impossible with God. I've heard but not seen that Tom Cruise is in several movies, probably like 25 or something, called Mission Impossible. I think it's more like five or six. I don't know. Um, but the title, I think, would better be, more accurately, be Mission Improbable. Right? It's kind of like that moment in Pirates when Jack Sparrow comes back. And they're like, it's not possible. Not probable, right? Because obviously it's possible because he's there. And uh, at least, again, I haven't seen them, but I think that Tom Cruise like, accomplishes the mission each time, right? So if he can do it like every single time, then it's, at le- it's improbable. Maybe even not improbable, though I'm sure it seems impossible along the way. Our text for today portrays an impossible situation, humanly speaking. It's an impossible situation if we're the only characters in the story, but we are not. And that's good for us because we can feel like we're the characters in the story. We're the ones who get things done. We make things happen. We've got some real doers here, and that's good but we can't get done the things that really need to get done. And before we read the text, remember where Ezekiel is as he writes. He's in Babylon, already in exile. Jerusalem hasn't yet been destroyed, but it's on its way. That's a big part of what he's prophesying in this book. The glory of the Lord has left the temple, and Ezekiel has all these pictures of Israel's unfaithfulness and Judah's unfaithfulness and treachery, which lead to the Lord's judgment and to their exile. They're vivid images of the siege of Jerusalem. Lots of people end up focusing on the Ezekiel bread. I'm not going to do the rant again on that. You can go back to the first message in this series if you want my Ezekiel bread rant from chapter 4. The thing that's actually happening there is God is saying a siege is going to happen. Jerusalem's going to fall and it's going to be so awful that you make this bread that now is like, it's God's own recipe, let's use it. I said I wasn't going to rant about that. All right. It's a picture of God's judgment. And you remember from that where Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, will, is told to lie on his side, for, left side, for 390 days for the number of years that Israel would experience God's judgment. And then on his right for 40 days for the number of years for Judah. This is not like how to live your best life now. These are strange pictures to tell a difficult story of God's judgment on sin. In chapter 15, Israel is pictured as a useless vine. And this is a metaphor that is also used in Isaiah and that Jesus picks up. It's a vine that doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. In chapter 16, they're an unfaithful bride. A bride who doesn't stick with her husband. And in that picture, the Lord very graphically describes how he saved 
Israel and rescued Israel as his own people. And then they turned away to other gods. In chapter 23, Israel and Judah are sinful sisters, together sinning with all the nations in their unfaithfulness. Now the nations also get theirs too. There's a series of prophecies against the nations in the late 20s and early 30s, and then a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, like what Chris preached several weeks ago from Jeremiah 23, a prophecy against the leaders. You who were supposed to be feeding the people are feeding yourselves and getting fat while you oppress the very people you are meant to serve. And similar to what Jeremiah did with it, Ezekiel goes on to say, I'm going to be their shepherd. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to care for them and bring them back. So Israel is in exile under God's judgment because of her continued sins. And even with these promises, it seemed impossible that the people would ever be brought back into the land, especially once the temple's destroyed. It's like, that's it. I mean, God's place is gone, and we don't live there. We are never getting back. But they would. God says in chapter 34 and then 36 that they would. The, the text right before ours for today is a promise, again, like in chapter 11 that Eric preached last week. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. That doesn't seem right. Like, he says it, but their experience says, like, no. And maybe some of us are there today. We know in our head truths about God. He's the God of the impossible, except for this, except for me. He can do anything, except there's no way he can work in this situation. Like, you, you don't know about that, Rob. Or maybe you do know about it, and so you understand why that this one's impossible. When the Lord promises something impossible here, then he gives them a picture to help them get it. And that's what Ezekiel 37 is. Their situation feels absolutely impossible, and they're not wrong. But nothing is impossible with God. God gives life out of death. He brings the dead to life. He promises here to bring Israel back from exile. And he has promised to save us and keep us and bring us all the way home through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's read. I'll read aloud. You follow along. I know that was kind of a long setup. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. That's code in Ezekiel for the Lord's giving him a vision. What does he see in this valley? It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. You can see him walking. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us thank him for it. Oh God, indeed, we thank you that you have spoken to us. That you've given us here a a picture of an impossible situation. Would you help our hearts now to believe? To believe that you are the God of the impossible and that you care for us. And believing, would you help us to live by the power of your Spirit in obedience to your commands, even the ones that don't make any sense to us? Would you do this? Neither of these things are natural to us. Neither of these things are automatic. And so, Spirit, would you come? Would you convince us? Would you convict us? Would you change us by your grace into the people that you want us to be? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea this morning is this. When all hope seems lost, we must hope in God who raises the dead. When all hope seems lost, when our situation feels impossible, There's nothing that can happen. Nothing can be done. We must hope in God who raises the dead. That's kind of code for like he does the impossible, right? I've been to one or two funerals. Way more than that. I've done way more than that. We've never had someone sit up and be like, what are you guys doing? Right? 
It's like 100% on that one. But God raises the dead. This text is a vivid illustration of what God does for his people. It's a picture of our true state and our desperate need that maybe we realize we have or maybe not. It's a picture of what God does for us by the power of the Spirit because of Christ. It's a picture, too, of the part we play in accomplishing his saving and restoring purposes. And that's kind of going to be the outline as we go. As we consider the God who raises the dead, the God of the impossible, let's see first our desperate need. Our desperate need. Some of you don't need to be convinced of this. You know you have needs that you cannot take care of on your own. Others are like, I mean, I'm glad Jesus saved me. I'm, I'm pretty good. I think I've got this. But have you ever been in an impossible situation where there's no right answer? There's nothing you can do? As we've seen, that's what's going on here in Ezekiel. That's why this was written. And we had the end of this vision. The vision really ends at verse 10. And then verse 11 is the explanation. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And they were right. They didn't have any reason to hope. They were cut off. Cut off from God's place. Seemingly cut off from God's blessing. They thought forever. But God was not done with them, and he is not done with us. They were in an impossible situation. There's no way we can be brought back. There's no way we can be regathered as God's people. And maybe you're in a situation like that right now. It's impossible. You've done everything you can do. You've sought help from other people. You're just up against a wall, and it's like, I'm just going to keep running into it. And it's like, that's no fun. And so we give up. Perhaps the Lord is asking us today, can these bones live? You think about how Ezekiel answered that question. He knows the correct answer is no. <laughs> right? These bones have been there a long time, right? It takes a while to get to where it's just bones. He's walking through this valley and it's just bones. There's nothing left. Everything else is wasted away. They were very dry. There's no even hint of life. No hope of life. And so in some ways, it's a, it's a question that doesn't make any sense, right? Can these bones live? Of course they can't. But Ezekiel also knows who's talking to him. But notice how he doesn't just jump to like, well, yeah, Lord. Of course, I believe. It's, oh, Lord, you know. And maybe that's where some of us need to be. Can these bones live? And it's not like, well, yeah, I mean, I know, I got this. I know you're going to come through tomorrow. It's all under control. Maybe your impossible situation, as the Lord asks you, can these bones live? You say, mm, I don't see how, but Lord, you know. 
there's an acknowledgement there that the Lord is the one who's sovereign. The Lord is the one he can trust to do the impossible. And maybe you're ready to give up because you're sure there's no way any good can come. All hope is lost, like for them. But nothing is impossible with God. There may be others here, probably the younger ones. Maybe you think you can do it on your own. Sure, I have problems, but they're not insurmountable. We can figure this out. That if you work hard enough, you'll get what you want. I get emails from people who would be like life coaches. I even sign up for some of these emails. And they tell me like how you can design your life. How you can make the right choices. Usually it involves getting up at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, hard pass. That is not happening. I don't want my best life that much. I assume that most of you don't either. And so they would just tell me, well, you didn't follow the advice. Of course, you're not getting, you know, you're not, you haven't made your first million yet. And it's not that everything in there is bad. I mean, the getting up at four is definitely bad. But the premise is flawed, right? Anyone who's lived longer than about 10 years knows the premise is flawed. You cannot be whatever you want to be, right? In a world where we're told we can identify as anything, I would like to identify as seven feet tall and a good basketball player. But no matter how much I shout my truth, everyone would know it's a lie on both counts. <laughs> but that's what I want. If I work hard enough, I can have it. And it's like, no, no, you can work all you want on some things and you will never have it. Never. No shot. And you're like, man, this is not a very encouraging sermon right now. But we need to know how desperate our situation is because if we don't think our situation is desperate, we don't really need a savior, right? If Jesus is just somebody who kind of helps me design my life a little better, gives me some good tips for how to handle relationships, gives me some good advice, you can't give dead bones advice. All you can give them is news that in Jesus Christ, there is life and salvation now and forever. And so it's not bad to get advice emails. It's not bad to get ideas about what you can do to improve your life. But they all come with this false promise that if you do the things they tell you, you'll make the money you want to make. You'll be who you want to be. You'll be happy in all your relationships. But it doesn't work. Sometimes you put in the work and everything falls apart anyway. And we're not just talking about NBA dreams here, are we? You've put in the work on that relationship and it broke anyway. You've put in the work on that career and all of a sudden you don't have a job. And you go, where, where do I go now? What am I going to do? You've invested in your children. And as adults, they're walking in their own way. Sometimes you put in the work and everything falls apart anyway. Our situation 
is desperate. We don't always feel it every moment, but the moments that we feel it, those are the moments we're close to actual reality. It's the moments we feel like we have it under control and we can do it. Those are the moments we're disconnected from our true condition. But it's the moments when we're overwhelmed, when we realize there's no way out, there's nothing we can do to change our situation, to change ourselves. Those are the moments where we're prepared to see God's gracious, miraculous provision. So we saw our desperate condition, but any good sermon cannot stop there. We cannot stop with death. We cannot stop with what is impossible because indeed we have a God who does the impossible. So let's see now God's gracious, miraculous provision. Did these bones deserve to live? These bones are the whole house of Israel. What have we seen about the whole house of Israel all through this? They're unfaithful. They go after other gods. God does everything for them, and they're like, yeah, thanks. Now I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, and I'm going to go my own way. It's like, that's not why I saved you. The ones who were supposed to care for and encourage others were oppressing them for their own gain. This is the house of Israel. These bones do not deserve to live. So God putting them together and breathing life into them is gracious. It is not because of them. It is not because of their merit. And he tells them that back in verse 22 in chapter 36. He tells Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. He says, you've given me a bad name, and I'm going to save you, and I love you, and you're my people, and I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will live in the land and be whole and be well. What grace. But what kind of grace has been shown to us, right? Are we here today because we're the good people who have it all together and know the right things to do and always do the right things? And one of those is, of course, coming to church. That's not our story, right? Our story is that we were dead, but we've been made alive. We were lost, but we have been found by Christ. We've been made alive by His Spirit, not by ourselves. We can go, oh, they were so bad. They didn't deserve this. Us too. But we experience God's gracious provision. It's not only gracious, it's also miraculous, right? These bones were very dry. They were not mostly dead. Like you can do something about mostly dead, right? They're all dead. All dead. Completely dead. So you can't hook them up to a machine And bring them back to life. But God raises the dead. He does 
the impossible. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in him for your salvation, God has already done the impossible for you. He has saved you. And it was miraculous. Miracles still happen today that anyone trusts in Jesus and wants to live for him is a miracle. And it's God's work. It's God's initiative. There are so many I wills in this passage and the ones around it. I will do this. I will do this. And you will know. I will do this for you. I'll put you in the land. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit in you. And you will know that I am the Lord. God promises here to bring life out of death. He'll put them back together. That's what the picture is. You have all these bones on the ground, and all of a sudden it's like it's an army of skeletons. A skeleton army doesn't do much good either, except in video games where skeletons can walk around and do stuff. So they're still no good. And then they get tendons and ligaments and muscles and skin. And they're still no good because there's no life. They're just there. But then... God sends his breath, his spirit. Like he breathed the breath of life into Adam, he breathes the breath of life into these bones, and they are revived. They are alive. And he breathes his life into us by his spirit. It's a picture here of him giving his people his spirit, bringing them back into the land, but it also is a picture of what he does for us. He sends his spirit and brings us to life. Because the people of Israel were not the only ones facing an impossible situation. Right? They were wondering, how could they really be God's people? And we might be wondering, how can we really be God's people? Look at how much I mess up. Look how often I fall. Ephesians 2, 12 to 14, written to us, those who are not Jews, who were strangers to the covenants of promise, says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, just like they felt, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. God has brought us near through Christ, and he has kept and is keeping his promise even today to put his spirit within his people and to cause them to live. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you been made alive? Have you realized your utter hopelessness of being right with God on your own? That there is no way you could get back to him. That your sins separate you from him, both now and forever. That you deserve his judgment. That there's no way you can stand before God 
and survive because no one can stand before him on their own. Every one of us has sinned against him, our creator and our king. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came into this world, son of God, son of man, fully God, but fully human. He lived the life that we were supposed to live, but haven't. He died on the cross, a bloody death, paying the price for all our sins so that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him alone would have life both now and forever. And his call to us today is to turn away from our sins, to turn away from making life work our own way, living by our own rules, acting like we can do it. And trusting in Christ alone, who has done it already. It's God who saves and keeps us. It's Christ who paid the price for our sins. And it's the Spirit who gives us life, who makes us holy, and who seals us for the day of redemption. Ensuring that everyone who hopes in Jesus will make it all the way On our own, we had no hope, but God raises the dead, and we have a part to play. Now, this is a little counterintuitive, but it's biblical, and we talk about it a lot, so you're like, counterintuitive? No, it's not. Uh, And for the kids, it means that's against the way that we would think it would go. Okay, so if we say God's the one who does it all, it's God's gracious, miraculous provision. It's him saying, I will do this. I will do that. I will do that. It makes sense to us logically that we don't do anything. And in one sense, that's true. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But in God's plan to save and restore this world... He gives us a part to play. And we get a picture of that right here in Ezekiel 37. What is our part then? Let's consider that. First, as we consider our part, trust the Lord to come through. That's expressed when Ezekiel says, Oh Lord, you know. (laughs) The right answer is no, but I trust you. Even if our faith is small, That's enough, because it's not about how much faith we have, it's about God and how much power he has. And the Bible is filled with people hoping when it didn't make sense. The the man of faith in whose family all of us are by faith, Abraham, we're told in Romans 4.18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He was in an impossible situation. When you're 100 years old and your wife is 90, you don't have kids. Even back then, you didn't. It was impossible, and that's the point. But Isaac was born anyway. What is your impossible situation? Whatever the circumstance, whatever the diagnosis, the family situation, that there's no way it could ever be turned around, the sin that we hate about ourselves and live in shame and regret over, and we just 
can't get over it, when we're on the verge of losing hope because our situation is impossible, we cast ourselves on God who raises the dead because he gives life when it's impossible to Abraham and Sarah, to Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, and to everyone who believes through Jesus Christ. So we trust the Lord to come through. He is sovereign. He's the one who graciously, miraculously saves. But our faith is not passive. It's active. We trust the Lord to come through, and we do what he has given us to do. We trust the Lord to come through, and we do what he has given us to do. And this is the part that doesn't seem to make too much sense. It's like, well, if the Lord does it all, he doesn't need us. Actually, you're right. He doesn't need us. But in his own mysterious plans, he chooses to use us. God is doing his saving work in the world today through his people. That's how he has chosen to work. We trust the Lord to come through. We pray. We look to him. We rest in him and we work. We do what he has given us to do. Especially in the context here, which is describing what the Lord would do for Israel and ultimately in the new covenant, this is an important passage talking about how people are brought to life through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so one application, one doing what he gives us to do is to tell people the good news about Jesus. Because God raises the dead to life by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word. And what we mean by that is not just preaching on Sunday in church. It's through each one of us as we tell the good news where we are. Ezekiel is told here to prophesy to the bones. Like the Lord could have just said, I'm going to save, I'm going to do it, here we go. But Ezekiel gets to play a part in the vision, right? It says, prophesy, tell them this is what the Lord says. And the first part happens. And he's like, now prophesy to the breath and tell it to go in there. And he does it. And it does it. We tell people what the Lord has said. We tell people what Jesus has done. The way back to God that he made through his life, death, and resurrection. We don't save anyone. Let me not be misunderstood here. We don't save anyone. God does. And he does it through our sharing the gospel. So that's the primary application. But God can also give life in other situations by his spirit. And he does it through our work. A passage that kind of brings both of these elements together, that God's the one who raises the dead, he's the one who gives life, and we have a part to play is 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. We'll have 1, 8 through 10 up on the screen first. Paul is describing here affliction that he and his missionary team, his apostolic team, faced in their ministry. And he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And maybe that's where some of us are today. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He has delivered you from death and hell, and He will deliver you again. What a promise. We trust in Him. We rest in Him. We hope in Him. He's the one who raises the dead. But look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. So who does it? Did their prayers do it? Did God do it? God does it. He's the one who raises the dead, but he gives us a part to play. So we trust the Lord to come through and we do what he has given us to do. And you go, I don't even know what to do. The problems are so big. And whether we're feeling those on the personal level, our own sins, it can feel like there's nothing I can do about this. I've tried. Whether it's family relationships, we go, there's, there's not a chance. There's, I know I'm not perfect, but boy, that other person, there's no chance. Maybe it's a relationship at work, on your block. It's like it just is what it is and we'll just manage. But there's no hope. It's our city. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for our city. And we can go like, well, we, I, can't, I can't do it. And we're not wrong. We can't. As the estimable Bobo Beck has said here many times, before he moved away. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And so if some of us today are feeling the weight of the world, there's no way I can solve all that. It's like, well, what's one thing you can do? What's one good thing you can do to help the one person who lives in your own house or lives next door to you or sits next to you at work, like Anna in Frozen 2. The kids know where this is going. We can do the next right thing. That's actually really good advice. The situation was overwhelming. It was too much. She didn't know how she could go on. And it's a lot like many of us can feel. So she can't do all the things, just do the next right thing. Take the next step of obedience. We feel like whatever we do will not be enough. We get paralyzed. But let's do the next right thing. All we can do is what's in front of us to do. We can't do tomorrow's work until tomorrow. We can't fight tomorrow's temptations until tomorrow. But we have the Lord's promise that he will give us grace for each day. And his grace will be there when we get there. But even though it's really good advice to just do the next right thing, some of us have lived long enough to know that we can't even do that. Does anybody feel that this morning? Like, I even know the thing that I'm supposed to do. I know the action step to fight against that sin, but I just don't have the will. 
I know the thing I'm supposed to do in that relationship, but when they say that, it just sets me off, and I can't do anything about it. That's perhaps the most devastating place to be. And sometimes people, especially who've grown up as Christians, they don't get there until like their 30s or something, when things really go wrong for the first time. And then they're coming and and talking with me and going like, I've always been able to just do what I was supposed to do. Like, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. But in this situation, I can't. And their whole world is turned upside down. Have you been there? It's like, I don't even know what to do anymore. I have no hope for this situation. No hope for myself in this situation. We can't even do the next right thing on our own, but with God, all things, all things are possible. I know Jimmy gave us a great scholarly definition of the word all a couple weeks ago, right? Everybody remember that? All, if you, if you look it up, all the ways it's used in Hebrew, all the ways it's used in Greek, every time it means all. All things are possible with God. So we need the Holy Spirit. The message is not do the next right thing. It's trust the Lord and do the next right thing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so one important application for us is we see there's no life without the Spirit. And we know from the New Testament as well, there's no life, there's no desiring the good, there's no actually doing the good apart from God's work in us by His Spirit. We pursue that work. And so are you pursuing the Holy Spirit? Not for some great experience, you can be like, I had this great experience with God, though that's not bad. Or are you pursuing the Holy Spirit for the strength you need to fight against your sin? For the wisdom to speak the right word in the right moment to that loved one. We need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life. There's no salvation without Him. The Holy Spirit empowers us to obey. There's no obedience without Him. Do we try to live our spiritual life without the Spirit. No wonder we fail. No wonder we struggle. And even if, okay, well, I prayed for filling of the Spirit every day this week and I still sinned, we will still stumble and fall. The Spirit's the one who gives life and empowers us to obey. And so we pray, we speak, and we work all in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do all of that. We work really hard at growing in likeness to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 4.10. It says, for to this end, to grow up in likeness to Christ, to train ourselves for godliness and not just for physical training. For to this end, we toil and strive. Those are words of hard work. Why? Because we have set our hope on the living God. That's why. Is your life one of toiling 
and striving with the help of the Holy Spirit. Toiling and striving for godliness. Toiling and striving for the things that God loves and that God wants. The only reason we would do that is because we have our hope set on the living God, the one who raises the dead. When all hope seems lost, we must hope in God who raises the dead. So whether it's our hope of being God's child and being accepted by him, our hope of life beyond the grave, our hope of conquering that sin, our hope of restored relationships with family, of that loved one, co-worker, or friend who's not a believer coming to faith in Christ, of seeing our city turned toward Christ. We hope in God. We trust that God will come through, and we do what he has given us to do by the power of his Spirit. God does it, and he works through our work. He works through our faith. He alone raises the dead, and so we can trust him both now and forever. Let's pray. Oh God, would you help us? Would you help the ones among us today who feel like their situation is truly impossible, that there's no turning it around, that there's no overcoming it, that there's no hope, that there's no help? Would you help them through this picture given to us in your word to see that you are the God of the impossible. To know that you can work and that you care. And would you help each one of us to trust you that even if situations don't work out the way we want or we think they should, would you help us to walk with you through them? doing what you have given us to do, trusting you that you will do what's right and that you will be with us, that you will carry us all the way to the end and we will be with you and all your people forever. Help us to hold on to hope today by holding on to you who raises the dead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.